This is Mindframe, a podcast of mind-bending science fiction. I am your host, Dave Moten. I'm the author of Mindframe and the narrator of all of our episodes. And with me, as always, is the, the producer without peer, the master of social media, Brent Van Tassel. Um, as always, we like to start the show um, by reminding you of the deliciousness of uh, El Yucateco Hot Sauce. They're our primary sponsor. Um, we like to give them a shout out at the top of the show, not just because they're paying us to, but because we genuinely love the product. We believe in them. And we think if you like hot sauce, you will like it too. Um, we were both on a Facebook group this week and someone posted a picture of pizza with uh, ranch dressing and El Yucateco and both of us separately in the comments were talking about how much that instantly made us want pizza. So even pizza and ranch has been transformed with the power of El Yucateco. But depending on your flavor type, your spice level, there is an El Yucateco for you. So check them out um, at your local uh, grocery store, your uh, local Target, Walmart, wherever you shop. And you can also go to elyucateco.com to find the full... Uh, the full barrage of their flavor options. So check out El Yucateco. Also, at the top of the show, we like to uh, remind you that we are a Podbelly original. We are a member of the Podbelly network. And if you go to podbelly.com, you can find not only our show, but a lot of other really great shows. You can find tips and tutorials if you're thinking about podcasting and you don't know where to start, or if you have recently started and you'd like to find a platform where you might be able to get the word out, then check out podbelly.com. It's a great network, and we are um, very happy uh, to be a member of it. And as always, um, if you like the uh, the background uh, behind the, the making of the episodes, um, think about Patreon. Um, if you join patreon.com, you can uh, become eligible to get all the sit-down episodes. Um, it's like a podcast within a podcast. We kind of go inception on you. Um, but uh, myself and Brent and Zach Smith all sit down and we talk about every uh, every chapter um, week by week. So if there's a chapter that you're curious about, if there's a, a tech that we mentioned, et cetera, uh, we go over it. So there's a sit down for every single episode that we do, and you can get to there uh, by going to patreon.com. So where we last left off, uh, we were uh, introduced to Hilt Burhan, um, and now we're into the first official chapter of part two of Mindframe, and it is chapter 21. And uh, we start a new order of events for the for the five main chapters that rotate through. And uh, this one uh, reintroduces us to Captain Claire Campana. Um, where we left her, she had just uh, we had seen her version of her meetup uh, with uh, Josephine, uh, aka Barbeau. And uh, she was getting ready to uh, send the Eleanor Gray out to look for a deviant messenger. And at some point, she's getting ready to meet the alpha messenger from WorldGov. And uh, we'll start to see some of that stuff unfold right here in Chapter 21 of Mindframe. Chapter 21, Captain Claire Campana, 2142. Claire sat in her ready room and stared at the screen. The security footage had been waiting for her to tap the large triangular play icon for long enough that her tea was now room temperature. She drank half of it with a swallow, as if it would brace her. On the pop-up menu, it asked if the system wanted to track a particular person or keep this one camera angle. She had it set to track her father through the ship, but she quickly unchecked that box and used a stationary camera view only. Claire had endless opportunity to watch footage of the Battle of Trujillo-Williams, but she always declined. 
She felt she would better honor the dead by watching once she was in command of the ship itself and here on board. She'd been aboard for days, but she put it off. And then she put it off some more. Today, finally, she knew she could no longer delay the moment. She was giving her big speech in three hours, and the whole solar system would be watching. Claire had to see the death first, at least some, or she'd feel like a fraud through her oration. She downed the rest of the tea. Its grassy notes were made a bit acrid by the temperature change, and she hit play. The camera was in the corner of the framing hall. It showed the framing chamber and had a view of three different necrogenically dormant enclosures. They were blood red and looked like a nine-foot-tall garden snail had merged with a bloated mosquito that had just filled its belly. The camera lurched a bit as the ship came to an all-stop of her reverse thrusters and she watched her father, Captain Bill Campana, slide out of the enclosure, reborn and unharmed from the relentless G's the Razor summoned. The only thing on his mind would have been a quick damage assessment, checking location and date, and then uncoupling Comet C-2098A3 Trujillo-Williams from the ship. On camera, her father slid out of the enclosure and landed on one knee. Staggering, he stood using a handle built into the side of the NDE for support. Moments later, the two Marines slid from their own giant snails, and they lay on the ground. They took some time to stand, and had to use their lances as a crutch. By the time they were on their feet and unaware, her father was already seeming at 100% standing on his own accord. She watched as he examined the framing chamber with something that looked like admiration. The Marines saluted her father, and he saluted back. The ritual of the salute snapped the Marines to the present. They sheathed their lances and drew their sabers, ready for the doors to the framing hall to open. Her father walked out of this camera's view. She reached forward to tell the system to track him to the CIC, but her gut outweighed her hand and brain. It said, no, you're not ready. She watched the footage on mute for several minutes. The Marines stood ready as the hatch to the framing hall opened and shut for the captain to leave. Once he was gone, they eased their stance and started to chat. One of them laughed a lot, and one of them appeared to be funny. There were eight Marines total in this hall, and in those few minutes of footage, a total of four passed through the camera's eye. When the attack came, only the original two were in frame. They were hydrating near their own enclosures as white balls that looked like giant puffs of pollen or digital error on the playback flitted through the walls. Scale was impossible to ascertain. One puff looked minuscule and directly in front of the camera, and another looked the size of a human head, but farther away. The gossamer death orbs bounced off the framing chamber and couldn't penetrate its odd hull. One touched a marine, passing through his calf, and he instantly lit ablaze with a white phosphorus flame. The second marine screamed something and ran to his aid, and another white ball danced through the bulkhead and into his chest, passing through as if there were no such thing as matter. He too screamed and burned. It was amazingly quick. They both went from marine to burn mark on the floor in moments. She rewound the footage and watched the clock. 1.8 seconds for the first, 2.4 for the second. Not a bad way to go, she realized. Quick. Painful, but not long enough for your mind to even register. She was glad to have listened to her gut. The sound would have been difficult, and having the cameras track her father would have been a bad move 
especially when she was about to face the crew. She reassured herself. These Marines, the crew, her father, they all died for Mission Prime, opening the Lariat. How many died by deviant attack, accident, harsh working conditions, risky missions to deep space, self-sacrifice? They were all recorded. They would all be celebrated once humanity had time to do so. But that time was not now, for the Lariat opened in only three months. The final stages of what the World Navy called Mission Prime, which had dominated the entirety of the human race for a century, needed a Razor-class vessel's enormous capability for thrust to push the completed Lariat into position. In order to open, it needed to be at a very specific distance from the sun and moving at a very specific speed to match a similar Lariat in another solar system that was built to link with only ours. For the past year and a half, Campana had assumed it would be her ship, the Eleanor Gray, doing the final honors. The Gray was the ship to push the first part of the Lariat into place over 80 years ago. The only reason the old dame wasn't pulled out of service decades back was the global assumption that it was the first and would be the last to move the Lariat. It was a very special ship with a very storied history. But Campana knew better now. The last of the crew boarded yesterday. The final repairs were completed, and the ship had left Akunga and was sailing on her own power. All that remained was the Alpha Messenger. The Alpha was boarding within the hour to send Campana's ship looking for a deviant messenger who communicated with some unknown alien agency, government, or group. Odds were that this mission would take the old dame far away from the Lariat's big moment. Campana was disappointed she would not likely be there to open the Lariat to see the first artifacts built by a non-human hand emerge from the gate. But the importance of this new mission had the momentum of 100 years of human progress behind it. The Lariat must be opened by WorldGov on this side and the Kel Democratia on the other, or everything that had happened, all the sacrifice and global reconstruction since and during WVW would be for naught. If the Deviants were somehow able to control when and where the Lariat was when it opened, then they, and their unknown alien alliance, would control the future of the solar system and this entire swath of the Milky Way. Campana tapped a button on her skin that let the officer's porter know to come clean up her tea. She straightened her uniform and adjusted her collar and left the ready room for the bridge. The Eleanor Gray's CIC was full, every station manned. The seven naval officers sat on their benches and observed the world through floating screens. They all murmured into their comm channels, orchestrating the ship for final preparations. Campana wondered how much was the officers doing what they had trained for, and how much was Josephine pushing them mentally, all the while thinking she was getting the hotel she called the old dame ready for something like an Easter brunch or a booming spring tourist season on Lake Ikunga. She sat at her own station, and Commander Begay turned slightly to indicate he was talking to Campana. He said, Captain, the Alpha Fleet has fully arrived, signaled all clear, and taken up a position at Akunga Station. On screen, Commander. The main screen, which floated above a horizontal tactical board just in front of the captain's chair, lit up. The images were photorealistic and three-dimensional, showing the placement of all vehicles in the area. At the center of the image was the enormous Akunga Shipyard, there were a dozen ships larger than the Grey being built inside of its massive rib-like struts, and there were countless other small ships, fighters, shuttles, and cargo haulers 
being churned out by this beast. Historically, Akunga was surrounded with the massive pieces of the lariat it was building, but all the major hull construction had been completed some time ago. The lariat was undergoing endless batteries of internal tests, but Akunga, like the Grey, had probably played its final part in the construction. The Alpha's fleet had assembled into a clean tactical wedge. It was the largest fleet Kampana had ever seen, even surpassing one of the attack fleets. Most of it wasn't battleships, though plenty were there, but habitat ships instead. There were a lot of people living and traveling around the Alpha, perhaps as many as were on a Kunga station. Tens of thousands, she'd guess. His flagship, the Tehachapi, was a unique class of ship. It registered in the Gray's tracking computer as flagship, Alpha Messenger, instead of a specific ship type. This was the only one of her class, or more honestly, the only one Kampana had seen. As Begay astutely pointed out at dinner last night, there could be hundreds of this beast on the other side of the lariat being flown by races making up the kill. A small moving blip appeared near the Tehachapi. The system said it was a shuttle. In a move of the ultimate overkill, eight larger blips appeared near it, war corvettes, ready to defend the shuttle. The Grey was roughly the same length and size of a corvette. She had a crew of 485, comparable to a corvette, but most were technicians, not combat experts. Just one of the corvettes could destroy the old dame with one salvo, but eight of them, plus the capital warships that flew beside the Tehachapi? Campana was baffled as to why the Alpha would leave all that security to come aboard the Grey for this mission to find the Deviant Messenger. Speed, perhaps? Speed was all this old ship offered compared to the rest of the great and deadly fleet. Commander Begay's screen dimmed, and he stood from his bench and walked to the captain at the tactical board. He said, Ma'am, the Alpha shuttle is on final approach, and the news crew is asking for permission to join us at the docking bay. Somehow, Campana had completely forgotten about the news crew. They were interviewing her today, but amid everything else, it felt like a fly buzz of importance. Permissions granted all around, Commander, the captain said. The naval bearing suddenly drained away from Begay. Instead of a confident officer in the world government's naval forces, she saw a human being confronted by what many people considered to be a near-alien mind, the single most powerful psychic in all of human history, the man who was almost single-handedly responsible for the current organizational structures of WorldGov and the oldest human being in all of history. Like most naval officers, Begay had met several of the WorldGov Enclave members over the years. They were all World Navy Commodores, giving speeches or presiding over a ceremony. But Begay, Campana, and the rest of the crew, and the vast statistical majority of the human race, had never seen a messenger's face. You ready to meet the messenger? Campana asked her first officer. If I told you no, Begay wondered out loud, would he hear me? The docking bay on the old Razor-class vessels was a spoke that separated the main hull at the fore of the ship and the three massive circular engines at the aft. There were ten bay entrances in total, but they converged into a main cargo deck with a fixed gravitational floor on which Down pointed toward the engines of Eleanor Gray. It was a different gravitational bearing than the rest of the ship, but it was all that made sense for anyone docking. Typically, the gravity plates, which pushed down on you from above instead of pulling down on you from below, were turned off during loading and unloading. 
But now they were active. The architect of WorldGov didn't need the indignity of floating about in zero-G as he left his shuttle. The officers had been lined up and waiting here for longer than the captain expected. Three troop carriers had docked to the Grey unannounced and unloaded several contingents of Marines. Campana didn't know if this was more security overkill for the messenger or if she would need a small invasion force to find this deviant. She counted that it was an entire company comprised of several platoons, far more than the Grey would ever normally house. The Marines started to set down rucksacks and personal effects, so she knew they planned to stay. She was a bit offended that she wasn't told about this and was starting to work the logistics of where they would bunk, but she saw Commander Begay frantically doing calculations on his arm and assumed he was already handling it. The entire senior staff was lined up in blue dress uniforms, displaying medals and accommodations earned through past glory and loss. A contingent of her own Marines were present, sabers at the ready, mostly eyeballing the news crew since they trusted everyone else on board. The three-person news production sensed the scrutiny and tried to situate themselves for the best shot they could manage without having to ask a Marine to move. Eleanor Gray's pleasant central voice talked through the docking sequence, and Campana felt each step of the procedure in the floor plating as arms extended and hatches married. Finally, the Gray said, Docking complete. Prepare for opening of Airlock 3. Airlock 3 opened rather unceremoniously, and the backs of each naval officer stiffened regally. An entourage of 12 Marines came out first, then a group of five people wearing a brown, billowy, monk-like uniform Campana had never seen before. Two floating attendant droids entered next, dipping a bit as they adjusted to the gravity, and then the old man himself crossed the threshold. He looked like a hoary monk from an esoteric order, a man crucial to some kingdom or empire of the past. He wore a head shaved bald and a long pointed beard that was even parts black and even parts white. He appeared to be a man in his late 60s, but that was far from accurate. On him, wrinkles and smile lines seemed to be deep crags etched into his face since childhood, not stripes earned through the years. He wore a similar uniform to what the framers wore, the long flowing pants and blousy shirt, but in pristine white with his symbol on a subdued arm patch. With him, the uniform looked more official, like he was the head of a religious order. A pope, not a priest. A yogi, not merely someone who practiced yoga in the park. It looked like the uniform was designed for this particular man to wear it, how it fit his persona and physical frame perfectly. But then, Campana realized, it probably was designed for him, specifically, to wear. He would have designed and worn the first such outfit and outlived everyone else to ever don it. He was the longest-seated member of WorldGov, clocking in at around 140 years old. He lived through WVW. He had the most powerful mind in all of human history, and he was on her ship. He walked past the line of officers. He carried a vintage metal lighter that he kept flicking open against his leg and then flipping to light and then closed again with a distinct metal click. It looked like a nervous habit or something well-practiced by a lifetime smoker of the old dangerous tobacco cigarettes. The Alpha leaned close to Commander Wen, the head engineer, and uttered something in his ear. The commander burst into tears and dropped to his knees in an instant. All of his training, bearing, and muscle strength blown away from his spirit by a whisper. Nobody moved to help him. 
Nobody knew what to do. One of the five men in strange uniforms bent down graciously and started to speak silently to the felled commander. Wen gripped the man's dark robes with white-knuckled fists. Whatever just happened, Campana hoped the engineer would pull it together. He was important in her speech later on. Alpha moved forward at a fast clip. He stopped at Campana and stared at her for a long time. His face beamed with a smile forged from those deep lines in his face. It was a goofy smile, fully embraced. You are just about perfect, he finally announced, and then suddenly hugged her with his full body. It felt fatherly. Then, as he shifted a bit, erotic. He stepped back with a hand on each of her shoulders. His eyes were a wildfire, and he had eyebrows as black as space and as turbulent as a field of wheat in a windstorm. He rubbed his hands over his face as if he had just washed it with water, and he stared for a long beat at Campana's hair. Decisions, decisions, Claire. You will have decisions. I envy you the chance you've been given, will be given, the fate of all earthlings. Imagine such a thing. Imagine centuries of progress since the scientific revolution all reaching a focal point, an aleph, a singularity. He gently placed the tips of his fingertips on Claire's breast and mimed the action of picking a tiny version of her up off of her chest. He said, with you and me, doing the same mime to his own chest, now holding a mimed version of him with his other hand. He placed them both next to each other in the air. He then did it for an imagined third person, placing that one next to the other two invisible people, and said, And the roar in the sky makes three. We can't forget the recent birth of a dream priest quantum techno wizard. Although I'm just a tool, my decision was made oh so long ago. I'm a what came first, not a what comes next. And that is the natural order of the cosmos, isn't it, my dear? Claire felt certain, just at that moment, that the Alpha Messenger was a crazy person. I probably am that, Alpha said, staring to the side of Campana's face as if someone else was standing an inch to her left. This was the ship I boarded the first time I ever left Earth. The Eleanor Gray. Ellie, he said, still smiling through all of his talk, but this smile becoming one of wise mourning instead of mirth. You couldn't have known her, of course. She was proud of this ship, the nomenclature. Still would be, especially with someone like you here to make the final call. He stomped on the deck plating as if testing its strength. He said to nobody, The walls don't move here. That will be important. Campana, do you have any sticks or twigs? Claire's brain failed to provide any sort of answer, even as feeble as a nod of the head. Then the Alpha's face was alight with realization and clarity as he said, No, of course you don't. Permission to come aboard. He said it. It wasn't a question. He made eye contact with Claire one last time. The smile was replaced with a placid concentration and he turned and exited the docking bay, heading presumably toward his quarters. His twelve marines circled him and three of his human advisors and two floating attendant horror shows followed. One of the men in the odd, identified uniform stayed back consoling the grieving head engineer. The other closed in to talk to Campana. I'm Dr. Lloyd. Namaste, the man said, 
giving a classic bow with his hands pressed before his face as if in prayer. He was Caucasian with a strong North American accent to his common. Permission for this delegation to come aboard? Granted, she said, returning the bow and saying, Namaste. I apologize for not informing you about the Marines. The Alpha announced the decision as we boarded the shuttle. He always has a plan, Captain, but he seldom shares it. I will strive to inform you of what he is doing at any given time, especially since he outranks you or anyone while he is on your ship. I'm happy to meet with your quartermaster to determine what provisions we'll need to feed and house the Marines. The Alpha is currently headed to enter the framing chamber and meet your framer. It will not upset the framing in any way. Here's my number, Dr. Lloyd said, flicking his skin to send it to Claire. Her collar vibrated to tell her it was received. I am his head liaison. Please contact me anytime with any question. I also set his schedule, so if you want to have a meeting with him, please send the request through me. I'm certain he'll meet with you in the next 48 hours on his own. I urge patience while dealing with the Alpha. He is a most unique man, but his results are indisputable. Thank you, Doctor. Perhaps after my speech, you and I can speak more. I need a much better debrief than what I've gotten so far in regards to impacts on my ship and crew. Dr. Lloyd gave a genuine smile, something that said that he fully understood her frustration and wanted to be of help. Dismissed, the captain called to the docking bay, quite confounded. Campana smiled pretty for the cameras. She was in her ready room off of the bridge, and the reporter, a handsome man from France whose language regional accent was permitted to weave itself through his pronunciation of the standard language and somehow make it sexy, stood before her. The reporter's camerawoman was from Nigeria, and the techie, an unusually tall Chinese man, both wore a technician's tank top. Their long arms were covered in moving sigils and pigments, and they tapped them constantly, giving them the impression of crazy people or old-world junkies instead of technical experts. Gautier was the reporter's name. His only name, Campana thought. He was famous for some daring reporting on deviant battles in the hills of Afghanistan and later out in the Kuiper Belt. He was the only person to ever interview the Alpha Messenger some years ago for a written piece in the New York Times. After that, he became a media favorite and the head reporter slash anchor for the news show called Who Is?, which asked that very question and then answered it with details and interviews of some central figure in WorldGov or the building of the Lariat. Campana liked Gautier's style, his boldness, and had been a fan of his journalism for years. He was close to her father's age, but still very handsome with perfectly architected gray streaks in his hair and a scruff of beard that assured the world he was far too busy tracking leads to bother picking up a razor. He obviously spent a great deal of chips on personal grooming and fine clothes. Gautier said, You should possess no worries. You're born for the camera, Captain with his firm and sexy enunciation. He paused with a may I look as he reached for her hair. She acquiesced with a nod and he adjusted something up there with two expert flicks. He nodded with satisfaction at his handiwork. I would like to say a standard opening piece for the show, give the title, ask a few questions, you know, then you can explain what is happening aboard, walk us to the brunch, we film your speech, bing bang, eat a nice meal, and we sit for the formal interview later. Now, all of it will be filmed, edited, and prepared for final broadcast later, except for the speech. You were informed that this portion will be streaming live across the solar system? 
Affirmative, Claire said. She knew that about the live stream of the speech, but suddenly, down to her bones, she knew it. Sounds good, Campana said, equally uncomfortable by her dress uniform as the scrutiny. Rolling, the Nigeria woman said. Synchronized, the techie said, staring only at his arms. Good evening. I stand here on the opposite side of our sun, just off of the vital Akunga shipyard aboard the Elador Gray. She is the first ship built outside of human understanding of physics, the first ship beamed to us by the messengers, the first ship in our hearts. I am Gautier. This is who is. Gautier folded his hands together, his index finger the only things keeping them from balling into a mutual fist. He put his fingers to his lips as if in thought. He continued, who is the youngest captain ever of a world naval vessel at only 29 years old? Who is it that inherited the beloved ship Eleanor Gray by an overwhelming upvote after the passing of her father in a tragic deviant ambush at the Battle of Trujillo Williams? Who is this woman, he said, delicately pointing at Campana with an open palm, who has had personal interaction with two of the 15 members of the WorldGov Enclave in the past week, she is Captain Claire Campana. Thank you for having me on the show, Gautier. The pleasure is all mine, I assure you. Thank you for having me on your ship, he said, taking her hand and gently kissing it. She was surprised by the kiss and flattered. She hoped to God she didn't just flush on the camera. Gautier, you are, as you said, aboard the Eleanor Gray, and I thought you might want to see the launch brunch we're hosting according to naval tradition. It's right through here she said, passing through the bulkhead into the walkway. She babbled a bit, pointing out features of the ship as Gautier and his film crew followed her. They ended up in the officer's mess, where the heads of the departments were all seated. Everyone stood upon her arrival. For the first time, Claire realized they were all significantly older than she was, save her old friend Commander Begay. You may be seated, she said, to the entire room as she approached a small wooden podium with Eleanor Gray's emblem embossed on it. The film crew settled to the side, and the officers sat. The ship's speakers squelched a bit as the entire feed went live. The whole crew, save the skeleton running her, was sitting in one mess hall or another to eat brunch before the launch. The whole crew waited to hear from their captain for the first time. The whole solar system. Many of the words were written by Commodore Nachayev's speechwriter while she was still on board the Clinton, but Kampana felt that they were all her sentiments. She supposed that's what a good speechwriter did, capture the spirit of a message and put a nice polish to it. She could have had the speech projected visually by her caller, but she didn't want the light halo in front of her. She could have also requested prompters against the back walls, but didn't want the crew to know she relied on that crutch. She also could have had it scroll across the skin on the back of her hand in smart melanin, but she wanted the full formal attire, which included gloves. So she'd spent the past several days of travel obsessively learning the speech and relied on her own charisma to sell it, something she'd have to get used to as an executive-level officer. She cleared her throat, not due to phlegm, but to hear that she was being picked up by the sound system, and she started. Men and women of Eleanor Gray, I stand before you and all assembled planets, oceans, stations, vessels, and settlements as the captain of your oldest, most beloved, most trusted ship. She has a long legacy, the longest in the fleet. As a little girl living in Tijuana, 
I memorized the names of her captains. Poe, Mifsud, Kapoor, McTeague. The last on that list was, of course, my father, Captain William Campana. He served with distinction and lost his life along with 476 souls at the Battle of Trujillo Williams. I am the next in line. I inherit and advance this wonderful ship's legacy. The room full of officers stood and applauded loudly. She paused until they sat again, noting that the camera was moving and panning, catching the emotion of the room. Legacy. Let us talk about legacy, she said. They had argued about the use of us. She insisted it be me since it were her ship and her words. The speechwriter suggested us for the inclusive connotations, and she reluctantly agreed. Seeing a slight uptick in the focus of the audience, she was glad she took his advice. She continued, My executive officer, Commander Begay, his great-grandfather served on the Grey during her very first mission. He was part of the early mapping expeditions that got detailed scans of planets, moons, and asteroids, so we knew what raw materials, common and exotic, we had in our galactic neighborhood. He was part of the crew that moved the first rocks to Earth's orbit to begin constructing the robust life humanity now lives outside of that small blue sphere. Now, his descendant stands ready on Eleanor Gray's deck and will do so on the day the Lariat opens. Legacy. Commander Wen, our head engineer. Campana paused and let the camera creep and get a shot of the engineer. She was worried about him after the Alpha whispered to him and made him collapse with emotion. Now, his jaw was set and his eyes were strong. It looked like whatever was said broke him down and rebuilt him hard. At the moment, he looked to be made of stuff as stern as any naval officer the captain had ever seen. His aunt served on Eleanor Gray. She advanced through an entire career on this ship, from an ensign to a commander. She spent her entire professional life in that very engine room. She was head engineer for my father. She died at his side with honor and bravery and pride in her ship, her crew, and her world's government. The room stood and applauded again. Campana hoped this wouldn't keep happening. She just wanted to get through the speech. Each burst of applause meant more time where she was standing there with nothing to do or say. She didn't know what to do with her hands, if her face was too stern or too kind. This was not her thing. The Eleanor Gray, or the old dame as we call her, is a legacy to everyone serving aboard. She is a legacy to everyone at home on Earth or anywhere in the solar system. More sophisticated ships with more advanced technology have been built by the human race in the century since she has flown the stars. But she was the first vessel that the Cal Democratia beamed to the messengers, the first true spacecraft capable of lifting the rocky shackles from humanity's wrists to let us fly among the heavens. The Lariat would not be if not for Eleanor Gray. The World Navy would not be if not for Eleanor Gray. Her early missions made the construction of the entire fleet, all of our space stations, even the dumpster possible. The Gray found the minerals, the Gray delivered them, and to this day the old dame still does. In fact, deviant terrorists attacked her and killed her crew when she was bringing ice for use as fuel, water, and oxygen. Deviants killed people, slowed down the opening of the lariat for water, for something that is so abundant on earth and frozen in space as to be laughable. Any sane person would have asked for water, and the one world government 
would have given them an ocean. It, the applause fired up again, this time less of a political thing to do and more of a genuine moment. In fact, it caught Campana off guard. She felt suddenly embarrassed and then overcorrected by starting to talk again before the clapping died. WorldGov would give the deviants food, water, shelter, ships, clothing, medicine, education, anything they need or desire, just as it does with the rest of us. But they kill us, and they rob us, all for things that we get for free by virtue of being a human being or dolphin born to this time in history. The minds of the deviant are more foreign to me than the minds of the wildest alien race any of our messengers have shown us. They steal when nothing need be stolen. They give us war when war has been abandoned. And that is the gift that the world government and the Kel Democratia give us. Safety, employment, health, education, food, water, security. Things that no era of humanity has ever known. An abundance mysterious to everyone in our past, from the Romans to the King Empire, from the British Crown to the United States of America. This is our legacy the best humanity that has ever existed. No deviant can stop the legacy of peace. No terrorist act can slow the opening of the lariat. In three months, three months, it opens. The deviants have already lost. We have already won. The lariat closes. I am honored. No, beyond honor, I am humbled that the world vote placed me on this ship as her captain decided I should be the one to continue to bear the flag and advance the legacy. The Eleanor Gray has been here since the first, and she shall be here till the last. I take command of her as captain, and I, like all of you listening, can only dream of the wonders she has helped make possible when the lariat indeed opens. More applause. Campana waved. The ceremony was over. It was her ship logistically, and now spiritually. As soon as they ate this brunch, she would stand on the bridge and begin her mission. Finally, she would have a chance to find the deviant messenger, and now, having given this speech, she realized for the first time she'd be able to avenge her father's death. Okay, so with that, we see the Alpha finally on board the Eleanor Gray. We see Captain Campana ready to finally launch her mission. And with a whole bunch of Marines on board, they're going to start looking for a Deviant, and we'll see what comes her way five chapters from now. So I hope you're still enjoying it. Um, thank you for, for sticking around. Again, um, if you like what you're listening to, uh, consider going to Patreon. Again, we have the sit-downs for every single episode, so uh, we do an in-depth uh, dive at, uh, at what's going on in the chapters. So if you have any questions or you just like to listen to a separate podcast about this podcast, then that would be the thing for you. Um, so just go to patreon.com slash mindframepodcast. As always, if you like my fiction, you can get my first novel from a different uh, trilogy of uh, stories um, called 181 Pine on mindframepodcast.com in the merch store. And you can also buy uh, the, the novels and short story collection of uh, Zach Smith on there as well, the co-host of our sit-downs. Um, we are a member of the Podbelly Network, and you can always find great shows on Podbelly Network. If you love podcasts and your commute and your uh, time on your Peloton makes you burn through the ones that you know and love, consider going to podbelly.com and look for shows such as Nerds on Topic and Paranormal Punchers to help uh, fill that, that void in your ear holes and make sure you've got quality content to listen to. 
Um, if you want to support us, another great way to support the show is just giving us a like, giving us a share, making some posts on social media, uh, making your friends aware of the show. If, if you like it, you probably run in circles of people who would as well. Let them know, tap them on the shoulder about it, tug on their coat a little bit. Uh, the easiest way is to find us on social media. You can find us on Facebook at Mindframe Podcast. You can find us on Instagram at The Mindframe Podcast. And you can find us on Twitter at Mindframe Pod. So thanks for listening. We'll see you on the next episode. And as always, remember the Lariat is closing. <laughs>